Hello and welcome to the Granter Podcast. I'm Ted Hodgkinson, the online editor, and today I'm delighted to be joined by two poets, Joe Shapcott, the author of several collections, including her book, and most recently, Of Mutability, for which she received the Costa Book Award, and George Surtzies, the author of several collections, including Real, which won the T.S. Eliot Prize. Today we'll be discussing their involvement in a cross-artform project spearheaded by the National Gallery as part of the Cultural Olympiad, which revolves around three paintings by Titian, Diana and Actian, The Death of Actian, and Diana and Callisto, all of which depict stories from Ovid's Metamorphoses. Several poets, including Caroline Duffy, Don Patterson, Simon Armitage, and Lavinia Greenlaw, have given us their own poetic interpretations of these stories, which will be exhibited alongside the paintings themselves as part of the celebrations that incorporate new artworks from Chris Affili, Conrad Shawcross and Mark Wallinger, as well as a ballet to be performed in the Royal Opera House. Today we'll be discussing what drew Joe Shapcott to write about Callista's tragic transformations and why George Xerxes was compelled by Actian's wayward gaze. We'll also discuss the metamorphosis that dogs in these paintings undergo. It seems the gods spare no one. We'll begin with a reading. Callisto's Song Stars, 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 and I am made of them now, looking down on myself, then a colorito woman. Yes, that was me in my red sandals, the great outdoors, curtained, golden, embroidered, and heat shimmer above blue mountains, nothing vertical, not even the plinth, and no speech, no names then, just a cry as the busybody nymphs stripped me, because we all had rounded bellies then, but nine months gone, so my navel curved like a gash, and oh, so noticeable among all the diagonals, and everyone looking a different way, looking a lot, especially the goddess, her arrow arm pointing, bow mouth strung, and dogs crouched because they sensed consequences, and gods arriving and doing what gods do upstairs, and the artist's finger loaded, and the paint alive, alive with stars, 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 stars. Thank you for reading that. I want to ask you about the the formal construction of this poem first, because to me it's similar to the paintings in the way that it draws attention to its texture, its tactility. Um, You may not have um, uh, heard that in the reading, but there are these wonderful stars that interrupt the lines and kind of dazzle and arrest the reader. Um, To me they feel like flourishes of paint or kind of um, tiny moments of... Um, an accretion of some kind of um, texture in the poem. And I wonder, was that your nod to Titian's um, textured canvases and the way that he draws attention to the paint? I think I was looking for, I was thinking um, of an adjective earlier for Callisto, and I can't think of a better one than Colorito, the way that she is so um, uh, sensual and... um, bold um, and it's it's a perfect word to describe her and also the the, the way that he's texturing um, his rendering of her um, I wonder are you trying to invoke his that same painterly style when you're writing in this poem? 
the texture of the paintings is very important, isn't it? And um, he he used his paint so freely and sensuously, and you know, in in at least one of those three Diana paintings, there are finger marks where he's clearly laid laid the finger the paint on with his fingers. Um, in my poem, I've done something that makes it quite hard to read because every word is separated by an asterisk. And you're right, this this is a sort of textual device, but also it's a narrative device, really, because Callisto's story is that she goes through a first metamorphosis into a bear, but then later is flung up into the sky and ends up as a constellation. She becomes the great bear, and her son becomes the little bear. So what I've done in the poem is to have her looking down at the moment the painting depicts, which is the moment her pregnancy is uncovered by the chaste and furious Diana. But she's looking from a long way in the future when she is now a constellation, mm. which presented me with a kind of technical problem. How, what does a constellation sound like? So in my head, <laughs> I guess that sounded like white noise. What would a bunch of stars sound like? Sort of... <laughs> What would the noise of the heavens be? And I couldn't get that into a, a poem, but I could get that visual sense of a crop of stars through the, the gesture of all the asterisks dotting the poem. At one point I worked um, with the typographer for the book that the National Gallery have produced, um, and we actually made the asterisks stars. Uh, but they didn't look as good. Somehow the kind of textual reference of the asterisk was better and more interesting. Hmm. It's interesting that you um, were thinking so much about perspective there because the paintings themselves, of course, um, are very careful with the way that they situate your eye and move your eye around the painting. And I wonder um, if you're, when you're inhabiting a voice, you're also doing that, aren't you? You're also kind of locating where you're seeing the story from. I think that's right, and you're also aware of where the reader or the the watcher is, and I think Titian is always terribly aware of that. I got very intrigued by who was looking at who in the painting, even to the point of drawing lines on my reproduction between the gaze and what the gaze was looking at. And it's crowded with nymphs, but they're all looking a different way, some at Diana for her reaction, some at Callisto, some at Callisto's eyes, some at Callisto's bellies. Some at, some at the nymph who's uncovering her. And then, of course, there's um, the dog who's looking out at us, kind of implicating us in this scene. Um, and if, if you think of the painting, too, as painted in a way to titillate, the dog is also implicating us as voyeurs. Hmm. And we're, we're somehow then part of it. It's, I'm just thinking about what you said about the white noise and the stars because there is this really interesting paradox between um, the sensual energy in the poem which I think very much comes through in, in the repetition and that the kind of incantatory speed of it and then at the same time um, this kind of arrested um, it's a sen it's, I think it doubles very nicely with the way that Callisto herself is both sensual and at the mercy of Diana, really, of, uh, at the mercy of her fate, which is to be, as you say, kind of um, changed into this... Um, I think the scariest part of her story, to me, part of it was that she was transformed into a bear, but then um, scared of other bears. She, she was a human in a bear's sort of costume. Yes. Um, and, and then the, the, the final indignity is that she's about to be killed by her own son. 
mm. of course not recognizing her in, because she's now a bear but then the, the Jove taking pity and saving the, the two of them but I think she is a sensual figure in that painting but her pain is very apparent um, the painter Lucian Freud described looking at her belly as so transforming for him that he went back and totally reworked a painting he was he was on at the time because mm. he'd been so astonished by Callisto's navel and her belly. It, it is a really, um, looking at it now, it's a very, um, uh, there's something very Freud about it. I mean, the, 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 you can see that the that he was inspired by that because it's so, um, it, there's something slightly abstract about the, the brush strokes there, isn't it? It sort of departs from the... Um, quite tight figurative um, anatomical um, rendering in other parts of the painting um. her, her body's sort of been moved around, it's all in a sort of Picasso way, as if the vulva is now across her belly mm. and that's it becomes very very transfixing um, Yes before we, before we move on um, I uh, want to just ask you about the um, the son who is um there's this very terrifying moment when the son, uh, it, it's actually, I think I'm thinking of the lines from Ovid, where the son actually um, sees the bear looking at him as though the bear knows him, which is obviously Callisto. And that kind of recognition is very important in your in your poem. When the, I'm thinking of the, um, the line, um, uh, oh, so noticeable among the diagonals. And um, I think what's noticeable and what's recognisable and telling in these paintings is often um, often it's often presented as a kind of um, unexpected and very subtle um, point you're, you're surrounded by this mythic scene with with extraordinarily sort of lush colours and as you say this, the most um, one of the one of the more sort of abstract details is the thing that's it's all sort of hinging around her belly um, which um, and it's, there's something very heartbreaking about the fact that her son ends up being recognizing her in that same way as yeah. this, this sort of fallen vessel. Or I, th I think that's right, and it's, it's a paradox, though, also, isn't it? Because um, it's a moment of revelation, and Titian's chosen the moment wonderfully because it's like the whole story is encapsulated in what one still image, which mm. isn't still. It's incredibly dynamic, but it's also the moment where her total femininity is exposed, her female power, mm. because she is pregnant and now everyone knows it and mm. it, it can't be hidden and it is a moment of vulnerability and pain but also a great moment of power It, it could be a moment of great female solidarity as well but it's not, is it? Diana doesn't really step up in that way She hardly looks after her her, um, <laughs> no. her, her you know, her her sister, her fellow female. Not at all. No, no. There's a great opposition, isn't there, between uh, the the chaste Diana, who's, who I guess is in a way betrayed by the sexuality of her nymph. And then the other paradox, in going back to the Ovid, is of course that Callisto is seduced by Jove, and his device is to disguise himself as Diana mm. to gain her trust, and she doesn't recognise him as Jove until it's too late. So, you know, Diana is, is invoked in, in this sexual act, but of course the real Diana is, you know, appalled mm. by this kind of 
sexuality, sensuality, this whole side of femininity to do with fecundity. Hmm. I, I want to talk more about Diana later on because I think that in both of these um, stories as surrounded by Titian, she, she does come across as being quite tyrannical and sort of imperious in a way. Um, these two stories are quite far apart in Ovid and he groups them together with Diana being the sort of the main linchpin it seems that, that holds them together. But before before I ask George to read his poem I just want to ask, it's really interesting that um, you've situated your perspective sort of at the um, the culmination if you like of Callisto's story when she's made her final metamorphosis into stars and I wonder does that give you um, often I think the hardest thing it seems with these stories is at which point to pause them at which point to actually dive in and, and render them and it seems that you've 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 really um, pulled out the trump card there of, of representing them from, from literally from the heavens, from the, the sort of final point. And in a way, you get to, to incorporate all other elements of the story in that moment. Um, perhaps I'm just congratulating you on, on, on that, but I, I, I'm interested in... It, it, was that a conscious thing that you wanted to sort of encapsulate the whole of that story, and was that a conscious decision? I, I think I, I admired... Titian's choice of moments um, mm. because he does manage to kind of encapsulate the whole opera <laughs> in this mm. one moment in, in all of the three paintings that are collected in the gallery um, but al allowing her to be in the heavens I suppose allows her to, s her to see it herself in a way that she can't when she's in, in the middle of the thing mm. I guess mm. Okay, wonderful um, George, if I could ask you to read your poem. Sure, would you like the John Donne? Please, thank okay. you. Actian. John Donne's 20th elegy. Oh my America, my new found land. Oh my America, discovered by slim chance, behind, as it seemed, a washing line I shoved aside without thinking. Does desire have thoughts or define its object? consuming all in a glance. You, with your several flesh, sinking upon itself in attitudes of hurt, while the dogs at my heels growl at the strange red shirt under a horn moon. You, drinking night water. Tell me what the ice steals or borrows. Why can't we let go without protest? My own body turns against me as I sense it grow contrary. Whatever night reveals, is dangerously toothed. And so the body burns as if torn by sheer profusion of skin and cry. It wears its ragged dress like something it once found comfort in, the kind of comfort even a dog learns by scent. So flesh falls away, ever less human, like desire itself, though pain still registers in a terrible balance the mind seems so reluctant to retain. Oh, my America, my nakedness. Thank you for reading that. I I want to ask you first about the Dunn um, quotation that begins the poem and the way that you've seemed to have imagined a sort of alternate life for Actian in some ways, or that the there's a sense of him experiencing or a life that he might have experienced um, had had his fate sort of gone a slightly different way. He has this glimpse of a promised land, which it seems so fitting that you're invoking America in that way because it, it is this when he comes across Diana in the grove with her nymphs it must have been like seeing um, 
an entirely new world um and so and a very fleshy one at that but he um he doesn't get to fulfill that um promised land he does and as america as we <laughs> as it, as it has happened um america in, in itself has um in many ways not fulfilled its its sort of um halcyon promise in the same way i wondered how um how that sort of epithet came about or what 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 triggered it for you it was the first thing I thought of. Don, I think, is probably the poet who is most freshly, most boldly sensuous, um, without, if you like, any... There's, there's something extraordinarily fresh about him. Um, he wrote this elegy, it's a praise of his mistress. He is looking at her naked body, and he discovers it as though it were a new found land. It is new virgin territory. Um, Diane is, of course, a virgin goddess. Mm. But for Actaeon, there is no such joy. Although there may be, for a brief second, as it pushes aside that very flimsy piece of red cloth. Mm. Um, but then that's as far as it gets. And I often wondered with that red cloth, in fact, as to how far it served to cover anything at all. Mm. It's not terribly big. And, you know, anyone coming along that way would have seen a number of interesting legs and arms and shoulders and have guessed that there was something there. But for him, as Titian shows it, this is a moment of potential innocent delight. But he doesn't get that. Mm. Um, and his body betraying him in this poem it comes across so painfully and... Um, it seems to be something that, um, we, as we were just talking about with Callisto, that it's so painful in these stories, the way that the body um, can be this thing that changes beyond your um, beyond your volition, beyond your choice. And um, I wonder if, if for you these stories are about, in a way, they're, they're stories about the gods and sort of supreme power, but in another way they're very much about frailty and... Um, coming to terms with our vulnerabilities. They're about fierce, conflicting emotions. Um, the, I mean, you could look upon them, and I think Mark Wallinger, the artist involved in it, does look upon it as an act of voyeurism. Mm. Except, of course, Hectorian doesn't mean to be a voyeur. He just kind of happens along, and his punishment is terrible. It is the most terrible punishment you could imagine. So the question is partly a matter of guilt, what is his guilt? We don't think he necessarily is particularly guilty, but he has intruded, he has been, he has offended a sacred territory um, for which he will be um, punished. So his, his act uh, forecasts his own ruin. And in that sort of respect, there's the association of coming upon scenes like this and being punished for it. Then, in fact, you will be punished by other people, but also possibly by yourself. And also, in another way, because I think of Titian in his 60s or so, when he's painting this, um, as a kind of last rage of the body, in which you know the body does consume itself mm. eventually. So to some degree, desire is hounded by its own dogs and is torn apart. Mm. Um, by all that helps it hunt. She, of course, is the goddess of hunting. He is a hunter. He's come to the very sort of sacred heart mm. of hunting. And it is his hunting dogs 
that will um, eventually tear into pieces. I want to just go back to something you said about the cloth because um, that sort of pseudo red, I think you called it earlier Titian red, um, which seems to me um, um, bloody in its implications or, or a symbol for blood that runs um, throughout all of these three paintings, in fact. Um, it's it's also, um, there's also a kind of um, flagrantness about the way that it's, it's both um, shielding her nakedness in the final painting and revealing it at the same time. Um, we talked earlier about Diana's imperiousness, but in this painting it seems that we're actually being um, implicated in the looking. Um, famously, I think that um, Diana isn't actually in this scene in, in Ovid, and um, Titian puts her in the scene and, and puts the bow in her hand. Um, and is it is it a? Um, I wonder if I could ask you as well, Joe, if um, seeing her exposed breast in that painting, there's something quite chilling about being implicated there. You say um, it's it's interesting, isn't it? In, in the final of the, the three paintings, where we, all we've got is um, the sight of um, Actian actually doing the process of his metamorphosis, not fully a stag, but but being eaten by his hounds and then the woman with the bow that I guess we assume is Diana fully dressed but with one breast exposed and somehow that one breast is more surprising and shocking than all of the naked volumes of flesh in the other paintings um, I suppose he wanted her there because all, all three of the poems share this sense that the mortals are not in a way actors they are acted upon in, in a way, ni neither Callisto uh, nor Actaeon have done anything, but the gods have done everything to them. Hmm. Um, you know, they're, they're, it, it's, it's the balance of power is, is just hugely exaggerated. And one of the things I thought of looking at that, there's a lot of nymphs plus Diana. It's like almost a vision, vision of womankind as seen by this young man who pushes aside inadvertently this piece of flimsy, flimsy cloth which isn't actually covering very much anyway so it's almost like a kind of a revelation of a possibility which you come across through something f so flimsy as to be barely an excuse really mm. um, and out of this flimsiness and I think actually in the Ovid Diana is sort of there she f uh, flicks water at him doesn't she and when the water touches his head that's when the, that's when the antlers begin to sprout she turns away from him Titian does actually show her kind of turning away and there's the moon and there is kind of face by the moon and by the water the little water which is trickling down there forever it's this gorgeous thing it's a potentially paradisal scene um, but it immediately um, turns around Mm. and uh, the dog at his heels is answered by the little dog at the other end the two dogs are facing each other and everything's sort of off, off kilter in the scene as well so it's sort of foreshadowing chaos in that the, the fountain is sloping mm. there's there's the skull on a plinth and so things aren't right things, things are suggesting um, the awfulness of his fate but so so subtly as well. I was looking at the um, slightly out of kilter fountain earlier, and 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 it, it's so. Once you've seen it, it's um, it's really unmistakable. But I think for a while, your eye wonders if because the nymphs are sort of also kind of slatternly, sort of um, 
draped across it that perhaps that's you know that's um perhaps it is straight but no it's not <laughs> the glass of water i think is there to, to deliberately to to prove that it's not in a way and um the the skull is i think really haunting because it's it's such a subtle gesture at the violence that's to come isn't it because he you know he he deliberately avoids um any sensational violence the closest that we come to is the red and the drape and and the skull mm. and perhaps the altercation between the two dogs which even the trees are red shaded mm. so there's you know it's as if even living things have that kind of echo in them but you have mm. that absolutely beautiful sky yes. which is a, you know, which is such mm. a sort of sensory beautiful thing mm. essentially i think it's it's about domains this is a domain mm. of diner this is a domain of the virgin huntress the goddess and it's an intrusion into that domain. So this, all those names and so forth, that is a kind of... You know, after a while you stop thinking about it because you just think of it as a human situation, mm. is that you have a domain which belongs to a certain kind of mind, a certain kind of being, and that you intrude upon this at your, at, at, at your peril. Mm. Um, and that the reason it speaks to us and it continues to speak to us is because we psychologically enter these paintings. So they're not simply, if you like, the, the actions of gods upon human beings. They're the actions of human beings who have the godlike capacity to act upon other human beings. Mm. Mm. It's interesting you mentioned that these were painted towards the end of his career um, and that also both of these stories and perhaps this is why they appealed to him particularly um, the drama here happens in seeing doesn't it the, the scenes that the real um, transgression is both in what's seen and Actian seeing too much and Diana um, seeing Callisto's um, as you mentioned um, Joe her, her vaginal looking um, pregnant belly um, and in both cases, it's. I think a lesser painter would would reach for um, something more shocking, something something that an action being performed, you know, something that that could be demonstrated as um, as as drama. Um, but he he goes for these scenes where it, it's really about what's perceived. And I wonder if a painter coming towards the end of his career, who who had seen so much that this was something to do with the costs of of seeing and the costs of um, beauty perhaps I'm I'm sure that's true I'm sure that's true but I I think there's another reason for all the looking as well um, that these paintings were commissions and they were commissioned for a king who would presumably put them in put them up to titillate himself and his male friends so, so in a way, he knew his commission. But I, I, th- I find it undercut all the time by the fact that the dog looks out at us in the Callisto painting. That, as you say rightly, the whole um, essence of the poems—we uh, well, call them poems, actually—that, but the whole essence of the paintings is looking. So, in some way, voyeurism, and we, as watchers of what's happening in the paintings, we are implicated. It's not simple. It's not. There's no simple titillation in those paintings at all. The figure who looks at uh, at us in the middle painting, in the dining acting, is a skull. Yes. Mm. Mm. So that's a skull that's making mm. contact with us. I think the paintings, Philip II's chambers. I understand it was right next to his chapel, mm. um, and this there was a sort of room into which he could retire, and th- there were curtains in front of his pictures. 
So that's when women came to the room quite often, the um, pictures would be covered up hmm. um, for various ambiguous and different reasons. Probably with a red drape. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, throw it aside. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I want to ask about the, the little dog, um, Diana's dog, actually, because the little dog here is actually quite terrifying once you look at its face. It's very kind of fierce looking, and even though it's 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 sort of fluffy and looks a little bit like a footrest, it, it it's it's also foreshadowed. Um, if you if you see the two paintings next to each other, the this very cute looking but slightly fierce um, lap dog of Diana's, and then these these great um, very um, sort of faceless horse sized almost hounds that are that are overwhelming actin um there's something quite bleakly funny in a way isn't there about how diana seems to be um very much in her uh pampered um as you said domain um and that the actin comes along with his big hound and there's this little sort of yapping thing trying to sort of fend him off and then actually the this, it sort of met, the dog, in a sense, metamorphoses as well, doesn't it? I guess that's what I'm trying to say. It, I, I think that's right. In, in there's very much a lap dog in the, the first Actium painting, then a kind of larger spaniel in the Callisto painting, which is looking mm. at us, and then the hounds in the final painting. But um, I was very fascinated by the dog in the Callisto painting because it is so staring, so. Um, I don't know. I don't know what mood it's got in its eye, but it's definitely staring at us. Mm. I even thought of writing from the point of view of the dog when I was first thinking about the poem. That was my first instinct. Um, but since the dog's not looking at the events in the painting, it was uh, that changed little, my mind. <laughs> that little lap dog reminds me of. Um, there's a lovely painting by Hogarth where family is a cat looking at the cage um, with a songbird in it. And the cat is a pretty little thing, but its teeth are extraordinarily sharp. Mm. And these little threatening things, um, which it is Joe says, and it's lovely the way that they sort of, I mean, it is metamorphosis. They mm. do metamorphose ever more. Mm. Everything is constantly in change. The mm. Actians in change, Callisto's in change, the dogs are changing, mm. and so forth. Um, nothing's ever still. Mm. That's. It's so interesting that... Um, just to return to the spaniel in in um, in the Callisto painting, how um, it, it's true that that the, the spaniel there is 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 slightly is looking at us and sort of outside the painting or outside the scene in a way. And um, I wonder when you were contemplating this this these commissions as Titian was contemplating his commissions from from the King of Spain, you know what were you? Um, I mean, Joe was just talking about how that she was intrigued to write from the dog's perspective. But did you find yourself spending time with these paintings and and um, uncovering things that you you hadn't expected before? Definitely, um, I I knew the story first from the Ovid, mm-hmm. so I, I began with the poem, if you like, and I didn't see the painting. It, it, itself until after I'd, I'd finished the poem but I, I, so I worked from reproductions um, more than one because the colours are all different I just wanted to get exposed to as many as possible but you, once you start thinking about it and writing about it you kind of insert yourself into the painting in a completely different way then when I finally saw the painting it was a very 
big emotional moment. I was mm. surprised at myself. You know, the tears came just to see this painting, which I now knew in a in a very profound way, having never seen it before. Mm. I've known this painting for a long time. I went to art school and I taught art and art history. This was one of the things I taught, actually. Um, but it's fascinating when you're given an invitation to come and write, you look differently. Mm. And it's not so much that the little details that you notice. It's, if you like, the potential meanings of the thing, the way that what you think of is wonderful, that's additional, that, that is gorgeous, cerulean blue, and there's acres and acres of female flesh and so on. And it's clearly to do with guilt and discovery. But the pathos of the thing kind of uh, moves in upon you. Mm. And um, it sort of opens these little extra packages of potential meaning, which um, you think may have got used to on a kind of formal sort of level. And as both you and Titian were commissioned to do works on these stories, I wonder if there's also a kind of um, a hidden language or an embedded um, a continuum in which there's a conversation which enriches these stories and adds to these stories constantly. And and in some ways, you know, the spaniel in, in the Callisto and the skull and the lapdog in in the Actian paintings. They they've they're come becoming part of the myth now. I mean they they are, they always were, but they Titian expands and, and elaborates on the myth, doesn't he? And perhaps that's a part of what's going on in your in both of your poems. I think that's that's certainly true. That the more than one metamorphosis has happened here from Ovid into these paintings into our poems and in the whole National Gallery project, also into dance pieces, hmm. um, into works of art art by young artists including um, a Diana who's this fierce robot figure, quite frightening um, and as George said earlier the, the, the moment of voyeurism that um, we're invited to look at in Wallenberg's piece Yeah, that's, uh, that's Mark Wallinger's piece I think about the nature of myth there's no time, the, the nature of myth is not to be stable and static mm. the reason it is myth mm. is because it is constantly modified because it's constantly inviting us to modified to identify it. It's interesting if one had written from a s viewpoint of one of the other figures, of course, and something else would emerge. Yes. Mm. You know? And I think it would be a case for any of those you could you could pick there. I mean, the acting, in a way, to me, was something I wanted to write for a long time, as a s not so much about acting, mm. but about that moment, about that kind of idea, which is... Um, I think he encapsulated as a male gaze or whatever, but not theorising it, but simply saying, what the hell is happening? What the hell does happen when you come upon something like it? What do you do? Mm. What is it you're supposed to feel? What are you supposed to think? And what is the object of the gaze, mm. of the glance, I'm supposed to think? It's interesting how both these mythological stories seem to need to be constantly reimagined. And I mean... As you said there, essentially what Actian's story is about is the male gaze, and perhaps if we could try and um, um, reduce Callisto's story to, to a, its sort of core, it would perhaps be... Um, well, it could be, it, it could be a number of things, but perhaps there, there's an opportunity there for that um, female solidarity that doesn't happen, or that it could even, if you wanted to go down that direction, um, be, a, be a feminist story of... Um, a woman being overpowered, uh, a strong woman um, being being taken advantage of, um, and um, but as you say, she's not really an actor in the story. She's she's acted upon. Um, 
But it had echoes for me of another story that I wrote about a while ago, which is the story of Pope Joan, who is this probably fictional female pope um, put there really to interrupt the line from St Peter, um, who was exposed as a woman. Everyone obviously thought she was male and she was very learned and you know, in her own right deserved to be pope. But she was exposed in the street when she gave birth in public. So it was this moment of total femininity which revealed her to the world and there's an echo of that for me in the Callisto um, painting in that she is revealed and exposed as who she is mm. in all her femininity in this moment and that terrifies Diana whose reaction is this famous pointing white arm um, which is taken up in the robot that you'll see in the gallery. Mm. But, you know, it, it, it's the, the theme underneath. So, Diana, it's about virginity, inviolability, the inviolable space. Mm. Mm. Uh, what happens when you enter the inviolable space? Or, in the case of Callisto, somebody has entered her inviolable space, mm. which is related to Diana's inviolability. Mm. So, it's... the Well, I don't know. Titian sort of presents it as a tyrannical power, that this inviolability. Mm. Um, w- but that need not necessarily be simply a female inviolability, it's just almost any inviolability, you know. Do not enter here, this is not your territory. Um, don't even look. People I, do. I think that's right, and Ovid's take on it is, is slightly more gentle because he emphasises how close Callisto was to Diana, that she was the favourite nymph, um, and that part of Callisto's um, shame and uh, in her, her own rape and pregnancy is a separation from Diana that she prefigures in her own imagination. Hmm. Yes, Diana in these paintings, I mean, you just mentioned that she's re- rendered in one of the dancers as a sort of tiring robotic um, figure. She, she really doesn't come across at all sympathetically here. You don't get any sense of her of her bond with uh, Callisto here. She's, she's really um, weighing in. On the other hand, you have to say this, that she's a goddess of hunting and acting as a hunter, and what mm. um, the hunting, what, what the dogs do to the stags is what she does. To, you know, so, so there's a sort of redress going on as well. Mm. And that's right, and I think there's also a suggestion in the Titian painting of um, uh, Juno egging on Diana. So th- the figure in red may be Juno egging mm-hmm. her on uh, because of her jealousy over Callisto's mm. seduction by Jove. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a sense of more than one female acting here. And that's kind of the greatness of the paintings, is because you can you now look at three or four different ways. Mm. Yeah. And all of these things are in there. You can't say, oh, this is not there, this is not there, because we bring what we bring to it. But we can only bring what is there to be seen. We can't, you know, impose readings on it. So all these um, levels of potential meaning just sort of seep out of the picture. And I think perhaps that's a, a good point to to tie things up and to just to contemplate the ways in which these paintings seem inexhaustibly full of possible versions. I mean, they're, they're, they are... Um, I'm sure that Titian was hoping to make these in some ways definitives, but they're also... There's an unfinished quality to them as well. I mean, the, the last Diana and Actian painting, I think, is quite unfinished. And, and there's something... Um, in the way that great, often great unfinished works do have a kind of a richness to them. Can I pick up one thing you said, which was about using the fingers? I'm um, Titian did, did, um, 
direction of Titian's career is to become ever more physical as a painter, to become ever less distinct, ever more kind of tactilely involved mm. with the work. And in a way, one of the things that it's that poems do in a slightly different sort of way, apart from subject matter, is to respond to the actual texture of things, to, to the way that you know the paintings are a product of touch and stroke and so forth and so forth. You're right that the very last one, with the death of um, Actaeon, that is an unfinished painting. And you can even see that the mood of painting has slightly changed in between. And as Titian moves on, he moves away ever, f uh, he moves ever further from sort of drawing and then painting, and painting directly and getting his hands in and getting, you know, just, just feeling his way through the paint. And for a painter who, who we've already emphasised his interest in looking, 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 presumably at that stage his sight was less acute, much less acute than it would have been earlier. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it's so interesting that maybe to finish on the, the the touch and as you began talking about his the use of his fingers and 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 as George was just saying now it seems that um, with with both of your your poems there's a sense of um, bodily touch corporeality and and Joe in your poem the um, the way that the the paint is actually applied, um, I think, in the the final lines, there's a, the artist's fingers loaded, and the paint alive, alive with stars, 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 stars. It's a really fitting testament to the the energy that this painter had in 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 the very late stages of his career. I think energy is a, a terrific word for all, all of. Mm those paintings, there's a, there's a dynamism that you can't even understand how he put there yeah. in the end. I think that those last lines of Joe's are lovely because they do, which paintings don't often, which uh, poems don't often do, or indeed people don't often do, we just regard these things as, you know, as a stage you could go through and you could see the people, but the actual physical energy of, of the work as a material object um, is something which is quite hard to bring out, and I think that's what those lines do. Great. Well, thank you both so much for reading and talking about these poems, and um, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Granter Podcast. For more information about the National Gallery's Titian celebrations, please do visit their website at nationalgallery.org. And join us next time.